and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spirits Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Adam B. Schneiderman, a student at the University of Michigan Law School. We will discuss his essay, Prove It, Judging the Hostile or Warlike Exclusion in Cyber Insurance Policies, which will be published in the Yale Law Review Forum. So welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and, and talk about this article. Yeah, well, the the pleasure is all mine. Um, I really enjoyed the article, and and first off, like congratulations on the placement. I mean, that's just so cool to see a law student placing an article in the Yale Law Journal. Thank you, I appreciate it. I was super excited when I got the news. Uh, funny enough, I was actually about to walk into the dentist when I got the call and and thought, man, I should take this. This has Connecticut area code. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So I thought the article was great. I really enjoyed reading it. And I thought it was really, um, really thoughtful about the the material that you're talking about. But before we get into the substance of the article, I, you know, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you became interested in insurance law, because, you know, from my practice experience, I know that it's super important, but I feel like most law students either don't care or like don't even realize it's a thing. Sure. Yeah. So it, it was a little bit of uh, fortuity. Um, my section got assigned uh, Professor Kyle Logue uh, for torts 1L year. And uh, he's really an insurance law and, and tax law uh, scholar. And so at the time, he was working on the restatement of the law liability insurance and sort of kept dropping insurance facts during uh, during the torts class. And so when it came time to take our uh, electives during the winter term, um, I decided, you know what, I really like his teaching style. I really like him. He's teaching a class that he seems like he'll probably be really passionate about. So I'll take it. And it, it turned out to be super interesting. It wasn't something I'd really thought about before. Um, like everyone else, I think I just sort of signed my insurance contracts you know, online and, and accepted that I had a policy, but didn't really ever think about the details. Um, and, and as I took the class, we talked about a bunch of things and, and the topic was really interesting. And so I sort of tried to think about ways in which it intersected with my prior uh, education and career, which had focused mostly on um, crime and uh, technology and, and, and the criminal justice system. So sort of bridged into what this paper is and, and what I hope my, my line of research will continue to be on. Mm -hmm. Well, so this particular paper sort of uses a kind of ongoing litigation as a jumping off point to think about bigger questions. And I'm not going to pronounce this right, but Mondelez or Mondelez? Yeah. I have no idea which way it's actually pronounced, although it's a company we're all familiar with, because uh, as it turns out, they are the maker of Oreos. And I think we can all get behind uh, that Oreos are good. <laughs> Oreo, well, you know, I, I used to be a Hydrox man, but, <laughs> you know, they were kosher, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so... Mondelez, I'll, I'll go with Mondelez v. v Zurich. Can you, can you kind of give listeners like a basic understanding of what happened sure. in the dispute that led to that case? Sure. So um, back in 2017, I'm sure a lot of listeners had 
had heard of the the not petya malware uh, attack that was sort of going around the globe uh, in, infecting computer systems and, and crippling them um, apparently Mandela's servers uh, were one of them um, and the, the 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 malware ended up disabling uh, 1,700 servers and, and 24,000 uh, laptops. Um, and so they turned to their insurer, Zurich, uh, under what is really uh, sort of a general property insurance policy rather than a specific cyber policy um, and, and sought coverage for, for the damage. And Zurich um, told them, sorry, we're not covering it. Uh, this is uh, excluded under the hostile warlike action uh, by a government or sovereign power because the attack had been attributed to a, a foreign power by uh, by the U.S. government in the news. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to come back to this coverage exclusion, mm-hmm. but maybe you could start by talking about the difference between like a general insurance coverage policy and mm-hmm. a cyber insurance sure. policy. Like what, what, why would they be separated? So uh, as it turns out, um, the commercial general liability uh, insurance policy that most companies have um, over time ha- has been the subject of serious litigation about um, whether it covers the loss of use of data um, or cyber risks or um, things that involve uh, computers and and, and data, essentially. Um, And the insurers fought against them uh, over a period of several decades uh, and and won numerous times and, and, and along the way changed the language to make it pretty clear at this point that cyber risks, risks to loss of data, exposure um, uh, of data, uh, loss of hardware, as the case is here, aren't covered by uh, the CGL policy, as it's commonly called, um, for presumably a variety of reasons. Um, sort of as I talk about in the paper, there is some suspicion that what what's a problem in, in, in the Windows operating system in one computer is potentially a problem in, in, in millions upon millions of computers. And therefore, you have a, a highly correlated risk. And so the losses could just be astronomical. And so um, over the last probably, I'd say, I think, 15 years or so, uh, standalone cyber insurance policies have been a, a growing market for insurers to offer uh, to fill in that gap in the general liability insurance policy. Mm. Well, so from an insurer's perspective, what's the difference between insuring general risks mm-hmm. and insuring cyber risks in particular? In other words, sure. what kind of what kind of characteristics make cyber risks difficult for insurers to price? Sure. So I think there's a couple of things that, that, that go on that make cyber risks uh, difficult to, to price the insurance on and, and, and sort of drive insurers to separate that coverage out and price it separately. Um, one, as I mentioned, is the correlated nature of the risk. Uh, the possibility that, as it was the case with some of the malware that was going around in 2017, um, these things would affect millions upon millions of users because an exploit in one computer was likely to allow you to exploit any number of computers. Um, two, there's, there's not really good data on cyber attacks. Um, so there's, it's real difficult to figure out the frequency, the nature, who's really a likely target, uh, what the probability is, um, and sort of things of that nature that are used in the actual 
actuarial calculations. Um, and so insurers have been very reticent uh, to cover it until recently when they decided uh, to get in the game because of the, the size of the pool that wanted it um, and start offering these, these standalone cyber policies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So setting that aside for a second, can you talk a little bit about the, the, uh, what is it? The hostile or warlike exclusion from insurance policies? Like what is that and how is it relevant to both general insurance policies and maybe also to cyber insurance policies? Yeah. So this is this, this exclusion, the, the language in this case was a sort of general property, um, though you find it in most of the cyber insurance policies that are being offered now, which is sort of why I took this case as a jumping off point. And the the theory is, is that, or, or at least the practice is, um, that they are going to exclude from coverage anything, any act, uh, hack, intrusion, uh, breach, whatever you want to sort of think of it as, um, that's been perpetrated by a foreign government um, or a sovereign power, or any agent acting uh, on behalf of that um, that government, um, it's not entirely clear why it matters who is uh, perpetrating it, unless you think that there's some sort of channeling effect that they are going to attack certain industries or they're going to attack certain types of businesses. There's never really been a completely clear, to my knowledge, explanation of why they've decided to exclude this. I, I mean, it's sort of, there've been various similar exclusions, the terrorism exclusion that now results in the, this sort of offering of terrorism insurance that's then reinsured by, by the government. Um, uh, so it's not entirely clear why they've carved out this exclusion, but it's, it's quite common. Um, and sort of, as I suggest in the paper, I think is, is quite problematic. Um, because of the nature of the evidence that would support an attribution uh, to a to a particular government or, or agent thereof. Mm-hmm. So my takeaway from the paper was kind of that we've got like a a kind of hostile or warlike action kind of common term in insurance or exclusion in insurance policies because the risk of hostile or warlike actions is basically hard. To quantify mm-hmm. and price, and then we've also got a kind of concern about about um, about cyber attack insurance policies because they're they're hard to quantify and price, and sort of like the two together seem to be like almost like a perfect storm of like difficult to quantify and price. Is that like a from an insurer's perspective? Is that the right way to think about the problem? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I understand it, right? These are obviously for-profit companies that are looking to use the principles that, that insurance companies use, risk spreading the law of large numbers, um, you know, actuarial calculations of risk and those sorts of things to try to make a profit off of these policies. And, and certainly it's difficult to figure out how to price these here because as, as you've sort of pointed out, I think quite poignantly, um, that there is a difficulty in in the act, in the basic actuarial uh, calculations for just an insurance a cyber insurance policy, and then that's compounded by we don't really know anything about what the likelihood of a government attack is or anything like that. And so, 
know, I'm not sure whether it's the right thing, given that um, these attacks can be quite costly. Um, and you're basically leaving people without insurance for something that's very difficult to prove or disprove. Um, but it's certainly understandable from my perspective why the insurers have done this. Uh, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, well, certainly they don't want to pay out on a yeah. policy. And it's also obviously difficult to price. But, I mean, part of me, and before we get into like the, the mm-hmm. meat, really, I think, of your article, I mean, part of me couldn't help but wonder is like, is the hostler warlike exclusion and the reasons for its existence even relevant to cyber insurance policies taken out by private companies? I mean, are, are they like, I mean, it's like, I understand the analogy, mm-hmm. but does it, do you think it actually works? Right. I mean, is like a cyber attack really the kind of thing that, I mean, I guess, the, I guess the question I'm asking is like, are the, complications that make the risks hard to price really the same kinds of complications in a way that we ought to include them in the same basket? Or are they the kinds of risks we ought to think about in different ways? Yeah, so that's it's an interesting question. It's difficult in part because sort of you point out private companies, and I think private companies are both the sort of direct target sometimes, but also are simply the unfortunate bystander that gets wrapped up in something. I mean, uh, I'm not sure that, that, you know, a foreign government was really targeting Mondelez with the NotPetya attack so much as the exploit just spread like wildfire and they got wrapped up in it. And so I'm not sure, I'm not actually sure how you would deal with it separately. Like, you know, because one of the mm. one of the common things is when we can't figure out how to how to deal with something in an insurance policy, basically it gets excluded, and then another insurance policy pops up. It's sort of like a weird game of whack a mole, um, and and we've seen this throughout sort of the history of litigation in the 20th century of of things popping up. In fact, the cyber policy is sort of a prime example. Over over the development mm. of the law, it becomes quite clear that it's not going to be included in in CGL policies and the sort of way they thought about it differently was, hey, we'll start offering a standalone insurance policy for it. And, um, you know, we'll take our best guess as to as to how we calculate premiums. And also, we're just going to exclude a bunch of things that seem like they make it sort of difficult to quantify. Um, so I'm not mm, sure how mm. you pull it out I'm, uh, or really how you insure against this risk if you really do think that it's different um, in kind than any of the other cyber risks. I'm still not entirely convinced that it is different um, than a criminal perpetrator, uh, unless you think that there are certain sectors that are particularly vulnerable to government attack. But if you have that kind of intuition and that kind of belief, I'm not sure why you don't just sort of make their premiums higher. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, like when reading your paper, it really struck me that the cyber insurance risk you were describing were kind of reminded me of like fire insurance risks before we had fire insurance maps. It's like it's like we the, like it, it almost seems like the insurance companies just don't have the tools yet to price some of these risks properly or even kind of know how to calibrate those. Risks. I think I think that's exactly it. And sort of the odd thing here is, is I think 
that one of the people in the best positions to figure this out is insurers because they have potentially a large pool of people that want to purchase and then would have to report or would presumably at least want to report uh, breaches, um, at which point they would start gathering data on the frequency of the breaches, the size of the damage from the breaches, et cetera. And so, so insurance companies act as an interesting information gathering um, center for cybersecurity, because right now, I mean, certainly public companies are, as I understand, under an obligation to disclose to their shareholders um, a data breach, um, private companies, uh, not necessarily, um, though I gather probably under some sort of reporting law, they might be. Um, but it, it would certainly centralize the, um, the information in a particular, in a singular entity, um, that would then be in a position to take that data and, and crunch the numbers and, and figure out just what the premium should be. So, um, I think you're right that it's, it's a case of not having the tools yet, just like fire insurance uh, before it existed. Um, but uh, there's there's some significant resistance to to making this sort of insurance uh, coverage exist. Mm. Well, I wondered, like, I mean, based on your paper, it seemed to me like a big part of the problem is just lack of information. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seems like a lot of the information is like confidential, mm-hmm. top secret, super classified government information that's not available. And you talk about that really extensively and like why that matters and specifically why that matters to the burden of proof in these cases. So, I mean, I wonder yeah. if you could talk a little bit about like who has the information, what kind of information matters and why the kind of burden of proof question is so important to, to the kind of problems you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So in, in- it is. It's it's a problem of information, uh, either asymmetry or certainly a lack of information. And in this case, really, both both the insured and the insurer are lacking the information. So it's not even quite a true information asymmetry. Um, a lot of this is classified. You know, like with a lot of these cyber attacks, all we have is is the U.S. government coming out and and saying, you know, we're attributing this attack to North Korea. We're attributing this this you know breach to Russia. Um, and much of the the material underlying that attribution is classified intelligence information um, that can't be shared with the public. I mean, we found out sort of in the wake of some of the hacks uh, on Sony um, that the NSA had breached its uh, North Korea's network um, several months before that attack had occurred, and so that's in some uh, some part where they got the information that that sort of supported the attribution of that attack uh, as, as originating from North Korea. Um, but we don't often get that. And that's that's a problem because you do, you have two private parties that are going to go to court that are fighting over insurance coverage. Um, and one of them sort of waving the New York Times saying, it's North Korea, it's North Korea, we're not going to cover this. And the other one saying, you know, sort of, <laughs> as my title says, prove it, right? Um because the burden is on the insurer in most jurisdictions uh, to prove that the claim is excluded once the insured has made a prima facie case. And so um, it's really important to making accurate attribution, uh, to make an accurate attribution in order to make an accurate uh, coverage determination. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, as you point out, it's like normally the burden is on the insurer 
to show that the exclusion applies. But it seemed like under the circumstances, there's almost a sense in which like it's hard for the insured to make out mm-hmm. their case. Yeah. So I think in this case, it's sort of hard for both to make out their case. But I think that to the extent that the that it's the in, insured who is saying, no, it's not North Korea, it's someone else, presumably based on a private uh, cybersecurity firm that they've hired to do a forensic analysis. Um, and I sort of suggest this in the paper that they may be in the better position to, um, to proving um, the case because they're the ones that have uh, information to, uh, to say that it's not. And so maybe we, we, we sort of flip the burdens and, and make it a prima facie burden to say that it's excluded. And you sort of say, here's the New York Times. We've established that it's North Korea because the government says that it's North Korea. And now show us your strong evidence that uh, it's not because you're the one who's mm. sort of in the better position because you're relying on the, the unclassified private security firm's evidence. Right. I mean, it also seems like governments might have reasons, like political reasons, to attribute blame to parties that are not actually to blame that, you know, ought not to be taken seriously in a litigation. Oh, context. certainly. And I think uh, I think that goes in both directions. There are there are political reasons to overstate your cybersecurity capabilities uh, and, and to suggest that, you know, it's it's North Korea or it's Russia or it's uh, whoever. Um almost as sort of a deterrent, like, hey, you do this again, we're going to know and and we're going to respond. There's also sort of geopolitical reasons not to respond, right? Certainly it can um, raise tensions to attribute an attack, and especially where you worry about hackers masking their identities by making it look like it's someone else. That's something you have to keep in the back of your mind before pointing the finger at another country as, as the U.S. government, you have to say to yourself, are we truly confident that, um, that this isn't just, you know, what's, what's known as a false flag um, and, and that it's not one country using code that looks like another country commonly uses in order to, to get the U.S. government to attribute it to, to that other country? Well, so Adam, in your paper, you suggest four different ways that we might think about sort of addressing or mitigating this problem. I wonder if you could just like briefly talk about about those and sort of explain why you think they would or wouldn't be effective. Sure. So um, there's been a lot of talk that, that there should be some sort of national cybersecurity safety board, sort of like the NTSB, this independent agency that conducts investigations um, and makes attributions and that this might even be a sort of public-private partnership to get more stakeholders involved and to presumably uh, make the, the attribution process a little more transparent. I think this is probably a pretty good idea for its limited purpose. I think it's probably a better way of attributing cyber attacks uh, from a transparency standpoint. I think there's probably still going to be um, classified information that doesn't get shared outside of those with clearances. but. Uh, the biggest problem I had with that solution for this case is that's great for attribution, but that doesn't help us in the courtroom to the extent that there is still classified information that can't be shared outside of those circles. Um, so the second thing that I looked at was was the Classified Information Procedures Act, uh, SEPA, um, which is currently implemented only in criminal cases. And it's a way of protecting classified information uh, during the course of a proceeding. Um, 
so that it, it doesn't get disclosed, but it can still be used. Um, it's, it's coupled with something I discussed as the silent witness rule, um, which allows a witness to testify in code regarding sensitive information. And then sort of a cryptographer's key type thing is given to the jury that says when they talk about place A, they mean this. When they talk about place B, they mean this. Um, and I suggest that that's probably at least a, a pretty decent uh, thing to consider expanding into the civil realm, because right now the only thing that exists to protect classified information in the civil realm is the state secrets privilege. And, and that pretty effectively ends litigation. Uh, there is um, some case law out there that says that if you deprive a defendant of something crucial to their defense uh, via the state secrets privilege, the case is dismissed. Um, that's problematic where the insurer bears the burden of proving the exclusion because now their case is going to be, you know, the case is going to be kicked out. And, and, and the other thing is that essentially makes the insurer the de facto arbiter um, of coverage uh, as, as sort of the final voice on the issue, um, leaving people without a real remedy um, other than presumably not using that insurer if they pull this move too often um, and, and are denying coverage when you think it's wrongful. Um, I also talk about the shifting the burden of proof. Um, sort of as I talked about, perhaps the the insured is in a better position to um, deal with this and, and to prove that it's not uh, a government actor because they're presumably going to be relying on uh, unclassified evidence gathered by the um, private security firm that they hire to do the forensic investigation. And so um, maybe requiring them to prove the inapplicability of a policy exclusion by a preponderance of the evidence rather than putting that burden on the insurer um, would allow cases to proceed and might allow us to get to a better result. Um, I think that's probably a pretty good way. Um, the final way is sort of the, <laughs> the, the melting pot, and that is to create a national security court um, that takes a bunch of procedures uh, sort of that I don't really talk about and don't define because I think that's best left for, for another paper and somebody who wants to write entirely about that because I imagine the structure would be pretty complicated. But the suggestion has been out there for a little while um, that maybe we should create one of these courts to deal with some of the terrorism cases back when they were first discussing whether we could deal with terrorism cases in an Article Three court or whether we should leave them at, at Gitmo or whether we should create something else. Um, and, and that might be a way to do this. And there might be a way to create some sort of transfer mechanism, uh, where a case is filed in your sort of traditional, uh, you know, uh, article three court, um, potentially even a state court. And, um, you know, you, you get a transfer when you realize, oh no, this, this may involve allegations of, uh, attribution to a state actor, um, that may involve classified information, and, and then that judge can hear that sort of in the way that the uh, the, the FISA court hears things under seal um, and has procedures uh, designed for highly sensitive um, national security matters. Um, and so, those are the four that I that I talked about, and, and, and think that uh, you know. Shifting the burden of proof is a start and, and maybe uh, heading in the right direction. The National Security Court um, is probably uh, a little bit better um, and might offer the best solution I come to, uh, sort of that conclusion via uh, sort of weighing the completeness of the solutions. And I think um, 
that just sort of offers the the best means uh, that that's out there right now. I mean, somebody may have something completely novel, which um, would be absolutely wonderful. Well, so a, a, a couple kind of macro questions for you, right? So, like the first one is like, why do you think that like reinsurance can't or like hasn't already solved this problem? So it's an interesting question because it's sort of reinsurance in the terrorism uh, market has has been around backed by the U.S. government, the Terrorism uh, Reinsurance Act, it's TRIA, um, and requires some pretty lofty things to happen um, such that basically at this point, nothing has really met the, the standard. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you have to have declarations that it was a terrorist act by by multiple government officials. You have to hit a certain threshold for damages, and so you know nothing nothing has has met that threshold yet. Um, it, you know, I'm not sure why it hasn't um, sort of sprung up as as an answer to this. It certainly seems like that would be one of the options that could that could take care of these these problems, but it it hasn't rushed in to really save the the terrorism as i recall uh, from reading in, in the uk the the terrorism reinsurance is backed there too by the government and so um you know it's uh it's unclear to me why they haven't stepped in um but it, it does seem like something that could certainly uh alleviate some of the problems well so the other question i had for you just a kind of macro question was like i I couldn't help but wonder reading your paper whether there wasn't like potentially a value to cyber insurance for companies, like like a signaling value apart from the value of their actual ability to collect on the policy. Like, is it possible that companies might buy these cyber insurance policies even if they don't think they can actually like collect on them just because of like what having the policy in the first place might mean to like whoever they want to give signals to about like their ability to protect themselves. Sure. And I think there's probably some actual value outside of just the indemnification. Um, you know, this is one of the things that insurance often provides uh, their uh, insureds is ways of minimizing the risk and assistance in in assessing the risk and, and taking steps to eliminate that risk or at least alleviate that risk. And so I think there probably is some value. Um, there might be some signaling value to, to customers, presumably, um, saying we take this matter seriously. Um, and perhaps that, you know, we're doing things to minimize the risk. Um, we may not always get a payout, but we're also consulting with our insurer uh, about ways to minimize risk and, and taking all of these steps. So I, I do think that there is some value to the insurance outside of just the um, indemnification for losses. Um, and, and I think important things that happen uh, that, that insurance can serve in part because they're in a pretty good position to understand risks and understand um, ways to minimize those risks, ways to uh, respond quickly to the to you know to things etc. And so I think there's there's significant value in in, in all of the things that it can do, uh, even if this insurance exclusion uh, for hostile or warlike actions stays in the policies and, and nobody steps in to create a hostile or warlike action 
policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so Adam, in closing, the paper is great. I totally thought it was fantastic. Um, and I, I thought it was beautifully written and really just like, sort of like the, the, the kind of student paper I like to see. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what kind of advice you have for other students who are thinking about something that they want to write, whether it's a, a note for their own journal or a scholarly mm -hmm. paper that they want to try to place somewhere else and sort of how they should think about topics, how they should think about writing and how they should think about kind of pitching their paper to journals for publication. Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the pieces of advice I got in grad school and I, I still get today from some of my professors that I talked to about about papers that I'm working on is you have to write about something you're really interested in um, because otherwise writing is just a slog and, and doing it's not fun. And so I think the biggest thing is find something you're interested in. Um, and then after that, reading. Reading a ton is the key to know what's out there and where the gap is because I think that's the best way to sell a paper to a journalist to say, nobody's really talking about this issue. Um, it's important. It's got these these real world implications. Um, and, and here I am and I've talked about it. I think one of the things that's great for, for law students to write on is, is sort of more practical things, um, a little less philosophical, a little less grand theory, sort of keep the, uh, the paper topic narrow. Um, as I tried to do here, um, it keeps the paper shorter, which I think is key because as a student selling your paper to a journal, it's much easier um, to sell that you're not taking up a ton of their real estate in, in their publication. Um, and um, it, it makes you potentially eligible for the online journals, which I think are a great outlet and, and sometimes undervalued um, for, for what they are. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, by having this narrow paper, you do a lot of good for yourself. Um, you aren't biting off too much. Um, you're opening up publication outlets. Um, you're making it manageable for yourself because, I mean, look, we've all got reading to do and, and you can't shirk, you can't shirk your responsibilities for classes just to write. Um, and then in the summers, you know, with summer work, et cetera, it's hard to get some time to write. Um, so I think um, find something you love, keep the topic narrow, do a lot of reading and think about sort of what's what's novel what's interesting and, and find a, an interesting hook that you can sell to the to the journals um i think that for me in this one it was both nobody's sort of talking about this important issue in the insurance context they're talking about it a lot in the national security attribution context combined with see here's something that's going on that says that this is going to affect real world cases um and and so it's something that we should be talking about because this has real implications for companies um that, you know, we buy products from. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks so much, Adam. Mm -hmm. It was a real pleasure having you on this fantastic paper. Congratulations again for getting it into the Yale Law Journal, which is so cool. And, um, you know, best of luck to you. Thanks, Brian. I, I really, uh, I'm happy to have had the opportunity to, to talk to you about this and to, to share this paper uh, with you and your listeners. And, um, you know, it's been fun.
insurance man knocking on my door. Yeah, every Monday morning, people that insurance man knocking on my door. Well, and I tell him to come back on a Tuesday. Because, son and boy, I haven't made no money, you know. He said, yeah, but you haven't paid your insurance in two, three weeks. Said, son and boy, and your insurance have done loud. He said, but you haven't paid your insurance in two, three weeks. He said, and your insurance have done loud. He said, if you don't pay it by next Wednesday, I reckon I'll have to let your insurance drive. I said, insurance man, please don't turn me out. Lord, I ain't got nobody to bear me. Nah, insurance man, please don't turn me out. I haven't got nobody to bear me. Why not? I said, if you won't bury me, they'll throw my body in the deep blue sea. I say, you know how times is nowadays. Can't no one man find no job. I say, you know how times is nowadays. Can't no one man find no job. I said, I can't even take care of my wife and baby, and I might yet to let my family starve. I said, please give me two more weeks. And church man, please do that for me. Now please give me one or two more weeks. And church man, please do that for me. Well, I say I don't live up north. My home is back down in Tennessee. 